Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And as some of you might be able to hear, coming off a little cold here. Yeah, you've been gone for a couple of days. Yeah, working from home. Don't usually do that, but don't mm. want to infect you, even if it is just a common cold. And Thanks. Yeah, now That's I'm back fine. in the office ignoring my own advice or the, the, the meta-analysis results that I talked about, what, probably two months ago. That you should stay home if you are sick. There's a, a good solid argument for paid sick leave. Mm. It, uh, employers are better off doing it. And uh, here I am anyway, working, kind of working through it because who knows why. It's fun? No. No, it's certainly not fun. <laughs> what are we doing, reading some emails? We've got some emails. Yeah, what, I'll go I got s- one. I don't believe you've even read this one yet. No. Okay. Hello, Connor and Gabe. I've been listening to your program for about a year now as I listen on my drive to work each Sunday morning. This is my first time chiming in. I'm writing to counter your statement that four-day work weeks would probably reduce productivity at factories and other companies that involved producing or moving products. Mm-hmm. Okay, we had said that that obviously we didn't know that was an open question. Yeah. So we okay, looked at yeah. a bunch of other research. I think sixty-one different companies were trying it out, and it was overwhelmingly positive the feedback that they had about it. Anyways, here this is Isaac. I work at an aerospace production company in Washington State. You said his name was Isaac. Isaac. Yeah, that's how you would pronounce it. Well, how am I supposed to pronounce it? Isaac. Isaac. Is, it, is that how you say it? Isaac? I, I, I think, Isaac? I, I think it's Isaac. <laughs> Keep going. We're talking to either Isaac or as He Isaac. works at an aerospace production company in Washington State. Oh, that, I, can, I think I can guess which one. <laughs> they switched to the four-day work week about five years ago now, company-wide, after a trial run was requested by several employees, including Isaac. Isaac. Yeah, Isaac. Or Isaac. Isaac. After the initial trial, we found that changing our scheduling actually increased productivity and reduced workplace accidents. The change in scheduling allows for more communication between shifts and reduces the amount of overtime hours employees are required to work. My employer also made the change permanent. Typically, overtime is now voluntary since we also shifted more employees to work night shifts or weekends. Anyhow, I don't want to use too much of your time, so I'll close by saying that working with this schedule allows me to spend more time with my wife and son. Best regards, Isaac in Washington State. Nice. Yeah. Anecdote. It's an anecdote. That's excellent. From his perspective, that's how it's been at a factory. Yeah, a place that makes airplanes. Uh, that Yeah, that's one piece of the puzzle we didn't have when we talked about it. Short email here that I have. Um, this is from Samuel Plazas, and Samuel writes, Dear Gabriel and Connor, I've been listening to your podcast through TuneIn Radio for over four to five years, and I've always liked your honesty and transparency. Well, I'm a habitual liar, but uh, okay. <laughs> thank, thank you, Samuel. Uh, there's uh, no way to get everyone's topics in there, but I really love that you managed to go all around science. Keep it up, exclamation point. Best regards and greetings from Belgium, Samuel. Uh, he also, under his name, either he put it in there or it comes automatically. He had his LinkedIn profile. Hmm. So I clicked in there, of sure. course. Curiosity killed the cat. <laughs> sure. um, he is a display engineer. He's got his master's in photonics engineering. So people who are looking at screens, uh, people like Samuel help you look at them, probably help make them in the first place. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention, he's from Ghent in the Flemish region. Beautiful. Right, ne- right next to uh, Bruges. So that's Ghent, a, an old, old, very old town. Very beautiful. And, and when I was there, yeah. um, one thing I heard from three different people in Ghent yeah. was 
like this kind of, yeah, oh, everyone goes to Bruges. It's, but Ghent is actually where it's at. Oh, everyone, all the tw- they all go to Bruges. But Ghent, they should really be coming to Ghent. Bruges is like a mini Ghent. Bruges is like if Disneyland... Well, there was that made movie. A European there was, there, city. Yeah, what was yeah. that movie? But there's some sort of. There, I, I felt that there was some tension between the two places, or some some envy, or some some rivalry. I don't yeah. know, but just know well, that the, the narcissism of the small difference. Sigmund Freud talked about that. <laughs> when there is when, when when two places are close to one another, they're going to be rivals. Okay, well, that's just what that's how it works. You've got some science. Yes, midwifery in the United States of America. Twelve percent of pregnant women opt for the care of midwives. Mm-hmm. 88% of births happen in a hospital under the um, yeah the care of, of OB doctors, obstetrics, mm-hmm. physicians. The situation is wildly different here in Germany. It is, it's law that a midwife has to be present at every birth. That's how we did it in a hospital here. You have to. Yeah, up unless on the you, Unless it happens spontaneously on the Autobahn, you, a, a midwife has to be there. So this study wouldn't make sense here in Germany. It makes sense in the United States because only 12% there happen. Um, This data, this is 1,300 responses to an online cross-sectional survey. Uh It is the Giving Voice to Mothers survey from 2010 to 2017. And this this has to be said, the survey was designed to document the experiences of pregnant parenting people of color and those who plan to give birth at home or in a freestanding birth center. So half of these 1,300 responses at home or in one of these centers. They had already done so. Yes. And so the survey is to figure out how was it. How was it? Um, It was five times more likely for women who gave birth in a community setting to say that they had a feeling of autonomy when they were doing it compared to a hospital setting. Five times more likely that they would have said they were treated with respect, and two times more likely, if they were if they gave birth in a hospital setting, that they were mistreated. That they said that they would have said that they were mistreated. Hmm. In a in the clinical setting, when treated by a midwife in the hospital, two times more likely that they felt res- high respect or autonomy, and also that they were that they had more time in, during the prenatal vi- visits. And that's one thing to be said about. People who gave birth in the community setting, it was 14 times more likely that they had more time prior to the birth. So during these prenatal appointments that they had more time. Hmm. Who, again, did you say came up with the survey? What, what is the organization behind it? Because... Giving voice to mothers. It is a multi-stakeholder team consisting of NGOs, professors of midwifery, um, they they did this from 2010 to 2017, like I said, and they were applying a WHO framework for quality care. Service users partnered with NGOs, clinicians, researchers to design and conduct the Giving Voice to Mothers survey. Hmm. Yeah, it, I, I find it interesting. It sounds like um, the initial claim is probably correct, that the needs of certain groups of women who are giving birth Mm-hmm. Um, aren't necessarily understood all that well, and that some of the experiences in hospitals are not going to be that great. That's a that's a story I've heard personally from other people. Um, the only thing that I I would like to add here at the end is the other side of the story is that giving birth at home or in a community setting mm-hmm. um, without the immediate care of of doctors all around you has higher risks. That is also 
known. So of course, if if everything works wonderfully, it's probably a very nice experience. If not, I'm just going to quote here from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, Research suggests that planned home births are associated with a higher risk of infant death, seizures, and nervous system disorders than planned hospital births. That's another part of the equation, obviously. Mm. One is how good did it feel as as the the mother or as the parent, uh, this process? And the the other part is how how much am I increasing the risk of of something happening? Yeah, of course. And and given you know, how busy doctors are, OB doctors are, of course, you're not going to get as much time because one of the conclusions there was 14 times more likely to have more time during your prenatal visits. That's uh, almost self-evident, obvious. Well, that, yeah, and helpful. But makes, makes, you, this, makes, you, makes you feel... It's a, it's a study that, yeah, at, up to this point didn't exist. So if, if you are looking for a, a more pleasant experience, then possibly look for a midwife. Yeah, they're all around here in Germany, as you said. It's it's a it's in law. A, yeah, I still remember Gerda, our our the midwife for the birth of Ava, was yeah. We had a, a really really long labor, and um, without her, God, that would have been awful. Ours visited us numerous times in our apartment afterwards, before, before, and then afterwards. And I remember the questions you wouldn't think of beforehand because our newborn baby, our daughter had gotten a little bit of lint in her eye. You could see it while she was blinking. And I'm like, you know, you're a scared new parent. What do I do? Do do I try to wipe it out? What if I infect the eye? Wait, wait. You know, it's fine. It's fine. And she ended up, I think, probably just lightly massaging the eye. Um, But so reassuring at a time when, as a new parent, you need that. And and some of the stuff that's so so simple, like your your child is not going to suffocate when you go to sleep. Don't worry. Yeah. I needed to hear that from yeah. Gerda. <laughs> yeah, last uh, bit of science here. Be, uh, feels the need to talk about this one because if you've seen it on your social media feeds, you might very well think it's fake news. Really, it sounds like it, but it's real news. It's news that I reported on for DWTV about a year ago. Um, these are orcas, the, the whales, the killer whales, as they're also called, off the coast of Spain and Portugal. And yes, they are attacking boats. And yes, they're sometimes sinking them. This is this is a thing that's really happening. It's been going for th- on for three years now. Ramming into these boats. It's kind of... It, or how they attack them. It's spooky. It's, it's a coordinated attack. Orcas can do that. They hunt seals this way. There's a very... I think it's a BBC documentary that shows them washing a seal off of an ice flow yeah. in a coordinated wave. Mm-hmm. They speak to each other. They're intelligent and they can coordinate their attacks or as some people online are talking about it, they have orchestrated attacks. Oh. <laughs> and how are they sinking these boats? Okay. So they these attacks began, well, actually the, the most recent one is probably the best example. Um, this was in early May and a Swiss sailboat was going through the Strait of Gibraltar sure. and um, noticed some whales circling around it. And what happened was, I'm just going to quote the captain of the ship here who gave an interview with a German magazine. He said the attacks were brutal. There were two smaller orcas and one larger one. The two little ones shook the rudder while the big one kept running and then rammed the ship from the side with full force. So anyone who's been on a sailboat, the rudder is how you move, how you control it. So once they clamp onto the rudder, you're, you're kind of stuck. How did they know to do that? That is what they've been doing for a couple years now. Um, to be honest, if you're looking at a boat from... You un- watch, you, I guess you look for the movement. No. You can see oh, how it's being... No, you're, you're thinking propeller. 
propelled? No, it, I'm, I'm think the Strait of Gibraltar is eight miles wide yeah. and anywhere from three to 900 meters deep. Most boats, if it's a, these are sailboats, yeah. would be sailing there. You, you have an engine, you have a motor, but you probably don't have it on. Okay. And the rudder is, to be honest, from, from the perspective of a whale, the most obvious thing to bite. It's the most biteable thing that you would see. It, it hangs down, it's thin, you could get your mouth around it. And it's probably moving back and forth from time to time? Or? It might be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would notice it. Whereas the keel, kind of thick, blunt, ra- rounded, it's not as easy to bite. Anyway, you've disabled it and the other one's ramming it. And in this case, um, they called in, they got the, the Tarifa, this coastal Spanish town, the Coast Guard to come out and put them on the boat and they're bringing this boat in um, and the boat ultimately sank, making it the third boat that has not just been attacked by orcas, Succumbed. But, but has actually sunk. Roughly, tw- roughly 20% of the attacks lead to a sinking. Um, and in 2020 alone, there were about 50 orca boat incidents. That's not the same as an attack. And it's strange. What is going on here? These are the Iberian orcas specifically, or the Iberian killer whale population. There are exactly 39 of them, and I happen to know where every single one is, and you can do, because if you go to orcaiberica.org, this is a Spanish-language website, and they're, they're tracking all of them. And so right now they're about two... How? Di- uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if they have little, little trackers on them. Yeah. Have or, to. Yeah. Or if it's visuals. Um, but you can, you can see probably two dozen of them are close to the Strait of Gibraltar right now, today, as we record... A couple of the other ones are getting close to Lisbon in, up in Portugal. There's one guy just way out in the ocean in the Atlantic. I don't know what he's doing. Just hanging out. Look, I need a break. Um, so you can track these things. And the question is, why are they doing this? And the most obvious answer that comes to everyone's mind, including a Twitter user, um, I'm going to quote him here. He says, my guess is that vessels of a certain size emit underwater engine noise at a frequency which is very annoying to orcas. Impacts to a rudder may well be an attempt on the propeller. So we all know that... To make the sound go away. Sound travels better in the medium of water. High frequency, these orcas don't like it. Yeah, they might be attacking it. Um, But if that's true, then why not elsewhere? And why not other boats? And actually, sailboats, in that sense, are the least likely target because you need to use the motor sometimes, especially when you're docking, but not all the time. Um, And so maybe they just... But maybe they just hold a grudge against humanity. This was kind of part of this book by this German author, Frank Schätzing, The Swarm, where they're just, you know, they've been hunting us for too long. Well, well, that's an anthropomorphism. I mean, that's giving killer whales, you know, human traits. Right. And why, again, why haven't they done this before? I, I think the, the weirdest or most unexpected answer is possibly the most plausible. And that is that this is a fad. F-A-D, a fad. So the same way that um, you and I probably wore baggy jeans for no reason at all when we were younger and kids today have or had fidget spinners or play with Pokemon cards. Mm. Orcas have fads, things that are suddenly popular for a while and then they go away. And my favorite example of this... And then they get imitated by other orcas trying to be cool too or what? Yeah, my favorite example is from the summer of 1987 and this was in the Puget Sound close to where I grew up, uh, northwestern United States, southwestern Canada. And in 1987, a female southern resident killer whale from K-Pod started carrying dead salmon on her head. So this is like a hat, but it's a, it's a dead salmon. Within weeks, two other pods had learned the same behavior, started doing it, and then by fall, all of them stopped. 
This was so. This this was literally a fad. It was cool if and you then were it went away, And then it wasn't cool to to wear dead salmon. No, on I, your head anymore. No, then it stopped being cool until last year, and twenty twenty two, where a dead fish, one orca was carrying a dead fish on its nose for a while. Did that get imitated? I don't believe it. That didn't that, pick that, up. that one didn't. That's, didn't pick up. that's like the kid who tries a new you know style, and everyone else is like, no. That's not it for me. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so the case, mimetic tendencies then of killer whales is what's going on here. Uh, yes, yes. And so it's very possible that one started doing this and the others are like, hey, that's kind of fun and it causes all this commotion. Let's just keep doing it. Again, there are only 39 of these whales. Um, juveniles are involved. Maybe it's just a cool, trendy thing. And it is only happening in this one part of the globe or is this? It is, yeah. yeah. It's, it's only happening there and no one has seen this elsewhere and it continues happening. It's probably going to continue happening. So two concrete, I guess, pieces of information for people, you know, who, who are listening right now. If you plan to sail through the Strait of Gibraltar, take a look at where the orcas are. You can see them. Again, that website is orcaiberica.org. And for those of you, the majority of you, who are nowhere near that area and never plan to be and You'll don't be fine. and don't go sailing. There's something else you still can do. Uh, as I was researching, I came across orcasound.net, and this is kind of like a citizen science project where you can try to listen for orcas. It's a cooperative hydrophone network and an open source software and hardware project. And in this case, it's the southern resident killer whales of the Pacific Northwest. And all you're doing is listening for sounds like this one. That would Un- be underneath the water? Underneath the water. That's a hydrophone. You're listening to the sounds of the water. That is a call or a sound like this one. And these, these would be the sounds that they would make before attacking a, a vessel? These are just the sounds that orcas make all the time. In fact, those were clicks. Uh, and that is more connected to, I believe, echolocation. So figuring out your surroundings through a series of clicks. And finally, you can also listen for whistles. ever since Free Willy, I've never heard, heard those sounds. <laughs> and the, if there are experts out there uh, who Those really, are all orcas? Those are all orcas, and the true experts out there may have possibly known just from listening to them that they were from the Pacific Northwest. They have a different accent or dialect. Oh, come on. They really do. They have a different accent or dialect than the ones here close to Europe. Uh, we were talking about midwifery and giving birth, gestational yeah. periods of 17 months, twice as long almost as us humans. Amazing animals. They live up to 90 years. And uh, they're doing What do they, what do they so, weigh? They get up to 10 meters. I think 55, 5,500, I, I think 5,500 kilos is what I, what, I, what I saw. They're heavy animals. They're amazing animals. And for some reason right now, they're having a little fun with sailboats. So if you're out there... Imagine the force of 5,500 kilos ramming into you at, what, a speed of probably 20, 30 miles an hour? That, that's scary stuff, yeah. Some, some memories of Moby Dick. That's it for us. Science Unscripted.